essentially, I think that this, this process seems it's been driven by spreadsheets rather than patient care. And to me, that's not acceptable given the crisis that we're in. That was Michael Mara on how patients are at the sharp end of a health service under pressure. Hello, and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip, and on this episode, I'll be joined by Rachel Amory and Justin Bowie to look at what's happening in the increasingly topsy-turvy world of Scottish politics. Actually, it struck me earlier, some of our listeners in the expanding global media empire of this podcast might not even know what a Stushy is. Given it's been Burns Night the other night, and Good Scots is at the front of my mind, I'll just quickly explain again that it is somewhere close to a Stramash, um, but below a Rami. And today, there is lots to discuss. More incredible twists in the painful saga of the gender recognition law debate, and we've been looking at some distressing claims about bullying in schools. All of this a little later. During the past week, we also took stock of the NHS, which is having a difficult time, to put it mildly. Six months ago, we looked at a new series of data trackers with DC Thompson's Soraway data team. The idea was to start tracking the new normal as we emerge from COVID. Well, that has not panned out so well. The rules relaxed, but the virus did not pack up its bags and leave. We're also short of cash, the economy's hobbled, and the workforce force is knackered. We focused on our heartlands north of Scotland's central belt, which takes in cities of Dundee, Aberdeen, Perth and Inverness, as well as all the rural areas north, east and west. In Tayside, some particular problems emerged. Derek Healy revealed on the Courier website this week how proposals had emerged about scaling back surgery to avoid being put in special measures by the government and to claw back a £39 million black hole in their finances. You can read more about that and separate concerns about high vacancy rates in psychiatric uh, departments on our web pages. Derek caught up with Dundee-based Labour MSP Michael Mara, who's been trying to raise this problem in Parliament and wants answers from First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. Okay, Michael, so you've written to Nicola Sturgeon asking her to intervene and allay fears that special measures could be imposed on NHS Tayside. Talk me through why you've decided to do that. Well, I'd hope to have the chance to raise it directly with uh, the First Minister today at First Minister's Questions. Um, unfortunately, the way the Chamber works, sometimes it doesn't happen. I mean, the specific reason in terms of why is because it appears to me from the emails that are uh, obtained from NHS Tayside that this fear of losing their autonomy is what's driving these immediate cuts in patient care. Now, the First, First Minister has it within our power to allay those fears right here and now and get that back on track. So... If she takes that action, if she tells them it's okay, get those operations done, then that can happen. Uh, you know, they uh, essentially, I think that this, this process seems it's been driven by spreadsheets rather than patient care, and to me, that's not acceptable given the crisis that we're in. I mean, just just to dial it back a little bit. This is a story about the health board scaling down surgery work, um, effectively, so that it can hide the extent of its money problems from the government ahead of the new financial year. This has been done specifically, as you say, to try and protect autonomy. Um, now many people listening will think, well, if NHS Tayside really is in this bad and, and sorry estate, maybe someone external should come in and help to run services. Surely what needs to happen is that ministers step in and say these procedures need to go ahead regardless of the circumstances. Isn't that what's really needed? Well, it's happened. this has happened before. People have stepped into NHS Tayside because of massive financial mismanagement and, and there's obviously a real fear from the, that that could could happen again but 
my principal concern is this is and this is about the patients. It's about people who, when they operate in theatres this week, are lying empty and closed. People are lying at home in pain because they can't get the procedures that they are now waiting years to have. Um, to, to me, with waiting lists are growing massively at the moment. Um, and we know that the various impact of that over years of, um, of, of uh, under-resourcing, but also the recent impacts of COVID in terms of what's uh, the, the, the backlog. Uh, and of course, the system is really strained. But I know, speaking to uh, clinicians over the last couple of days, how angry they are. And I think that the email you, you've seen recognises that. They know that clinicians are angry that they're being asked to do this. And it's about sorting that bottom line rather than doing what they want to do, which is deliver the care for patients. That's not acceptable. That, that's all I wanted to ask you about, you know, what, what you are hearing from staff on the ground on this. Because I can't imagine if I'm coming in every day and I'm trying to put patients first and working in extremely difficult conditions, I think everyone recognises that. And then you get this email th saying that things are going to be scaled back and you are going to be sort of, again, kind of gaming the system a little bit in terms of how you're going to be operating um, and, and moving forward. What are they saying to you? How are they reacting to this? Well, Talk me through that. So clinicians are, you're right, working incredibly hard in really, really difficult circumstances, right across the NHS at the moment in Scotland, uh, whether those be you know consultants, whether they be surgeons, whether they be nurses, whether they be porters, whether they be the administration staff in the, the hospitals, you know, everyone's under huge strain. Uh, and, and we know that that's the case, and you can see that in, in the numbers. But on, on a human level, they want to be doing the job that they are trained to do and employed to do. And you know these these people want to be delivering the procedures because they know the difference it's making to people. So when they're told on the basis of, you know, we, we, in essence, we kind of a financial spreadsheet jiggery pokery. If we hold off for ten weeks, we can get underneath this bar. You know, nobody will come in and tell us what to do. Um, you know, I don't think that they feel that's acceptable. They're saying to me, yeah, there's real anger, real anger amongst these staff who are tra trained to do this work, and they want to get on and do it. And, and what are we talking about here? Just to, to go back to it. So, I mean, these are my understanding is that kind of the, the highest criteria, you know, the highest priority cases are, are still going to go ahead. Um, some of the slightly lower ones, the amber ones, is how they term it. They, they are going to be done where possible. So, we're not necessarily talking about patients being put directly at risk, but as patients being inconvenienced and having to wait longer. Is that correct? So. Life-saving care clearly is being protected in this process. And, you know, what we'll be looking at is uh, huge uh, swathes of elective care just not happening. But I don't think that's inconvenience. For this is about, this is surgery that allows people to live their lives in a decent way. This is, it's not so people can be running track and field. You know, this is people who are you know, looking for, whether it be a knee replacement or some kind of uh, surgery, that they've been, frankly, many of them waiting an awful long time for. And they're waiting longer and longer for this work. Um, I, I also think that the NHS they just have to front this up with the public. The public, I think, recognise that the NHS is under huge strain, but they have to be honest with people about the challenges that they're facing and the weights that they're likely to face or their family members are likely to face as well, uh, rather than this kind of process. And of course, this wasn't the only big health story this week that you were involved in. Um, we saw a warning from senior managers working in psychiatry that services in Scotland are, in their words, unsafe. And then thrown into the bargain is the fact that Tayside has the single worst performance for hiring general adult psychiatry staff anywhere in Scotland. Um, I know you've done a lot of casework around mental health. 
just how concerned should people be by the state of these services and what do we do now to sort them out? Well, people are really concerned about them. As a Dundonian, I can't think of a family that I know that isn't affected in some way by this. People who have lost family members uh, to suicide uh, who uh, or who have been uh, acutely affected by significant mental health challenges. Uh, and we know that those instances are growing all the time at the moment, huge impact in terms of, again, the pandemic and post-pandemic, people's anxiety and stress. So it's a growing problem rather than a, a shrinking problem. But actually, the, the situation in Tayside has been described to me as the canary in the coal mine around Scottish mental health services. And actually, when you look at those figures, you know, you're looking at um, a, a huge number of vacant posts and also the vacant permanent posts, long-term posts, but they're filling those with locum posts, some of them. They're still not getting the full complement and very far from it. But the locum posts won't typically cover out of hours work. So the services are automatically reduced. And actually the part of a full-time permanent member of staff is to train up that next generation of staff. So that it's not even a stick in plaster. You know, it's just managing a downward spiral. And we have to be in a situation where we can change those services. Your point in that, Derek, and asking what do we need to do to change it, well, I think that the record of this SNP government, along with NHS Tayside, on the transformation and change process around services is one of the areas where they are weakest. They were elected 15 years ago on a programme of no reform, and they have refused to reform public services, and frankly, they're really, really bad at it. And Dundee, I think, has borne the brunt of that. So let me say mental health, drug and substance uh, services, uh, two areas which uh, we have had multiple official reports over a period of years saying that we have to fundamentally change the way these services delivered and there is next to no progress in delivering that kind of change. And ministers say to me that they're frustrated by that and they talk about that in the chamber. But the reality of that is that there are real consequences that are, we are seeing lost lives in this city as a result of their inability to change those services. We're talking about psychiatry specifically. I know that NHS Tayside's response to this has been to point to a national shortage of psychiatrists. And we've seen that in other areas where there's been difficulties, I'm thinking particularly of oncology. Um, how fair do you think that that is as a defence or, or a statement to make? Well, the, well, the, fi the figures in Dundee and uh, Tayside are much worse than mm. pretty much any place else in the country, well, than anywhere else in the country. And they are significantly worse than the national average. So there's a picture here in Dundee and Nine Wells and across NHS Tayside, which is acutely worse. So it's not a reason. The longer term solution to this, as I've said, is not actually to deal with this on the basis of um, you know, a, a stick and plaster of locums. We have to train that next generation and it, it's filling those posts permanently. Now, that can't be allowed to become a catch-22 situation. So there's, there's issues in this about the, um, the amount of time that uh, consultant psychiatrists uh, spend facing patients versus the rest of their workload. In Scotland, that's typically on a nine-to-one ratio. So 90% of their time will be patient-facing, 10% will be for all the other work. That'll be the training, the, uh, the admin, um, uh, and the, uh, the development of, of other staff, uh, and various other tasks. Um, more typically in the rest of the UK, that's a 73 ratio and gives them a lot more time and ability to actually do that work. So I know there's a recent one recent post in, in Tayside that's advertised on a better ratio basis. So I know that some of that's quite technical in terms of, but it's, it's really critical that we get that balance correct. But that's only one part of the mental health story. You know, they, that's the acute psychiatry. 
There's also the report of the Ministerial Oversight Group this week that was uh, that was published that said there's still a very significant gap between what independent scrutiny says about the performance of mental health services in Tayside and what the bodies locally, so NHS Tayside, Dundee City Council, uh, the Health and Social Care Partnership, what they are claiming is happening, and actually independent people looking at it says the progress on change is much more limited. So there's an awful, awful lot more work to do. I think one of the questions people often ask me when I'm reporting on NHS Tayside and some of these stories that come out, what exactly is going on? How are there these problems in so many areas? You know, we we revealed that NHS Tayside is on track to be the second worst in Scot- second worst health board in Scotland in terms of finances. We're talking about psychiatry, we're talking about mental health, we're talking about breast cancer services right across the board. I spoke to a very experienced doctor yesterday who told me that he's getting older now and is genuinely concerned for the state of services in this area and what's going to be waiting for him when he has to start relying on things. This is maybe an unfair question to ask you, but you know what on earth is going on? What do you think is behind all this? Is it just management failures or what's going on? So I, I don't think it's an unfair question. I think it's, it's, it's right at the heart of what I think the job of politicians and people are elected is to, is to be asking those questions. Um, and you know, I, it doesn't just frustrate me as a Dundonian, um, it deeply, deeply worries me uh, across those services I've already talked about. And you know that I've done quite a lot of work on the breast cancer um, issue as well, and there's similarities in some of that. I think that there are clearly and have been long-term issues of management in terms of, uh, frankly, I do think there's an issue about not being prepared to front up with the public about some of the challenges. Um, and the breast cancer issues, a particular one around that, it's a good example, I think, because unless you're being honest about the challenges that you face and you give full disclosure about what's happened, we're not going to be able to move on and deal with that situation. More broadly, Dundee and parts of Tayside have acute issues of poverty, they have acute issues of um, a poor public health, uh, provision um, that affects all of those services um, and of course the outcomes across these services are so much worse for people who come from poorer backgrounds so there is how we resource that appropriately is part of the question I also think there's other structural issues about uh, the how we attract and retain talent in Tayside we have an outstanding medical school it's one of the best in the UK you know, it's still one of the best in the UK. Um, and we have to make sure that we do better in terms of retaining that talent in this area. Too many of those consultant level, higher level clinicians are being pulled further away from Dundee to the central belt. Um, and that's a w- issues about how you structure your health service. So many specialisms becoming centralised within that central belt. Um, and frankly, the other parts of the country have become not just Cinderella's, but you know, incredibly neglected in terms of this way that the government actually wants to design and deliver the NHS as a whole. Um, So we have to make sure that we change some of those career incentives to keep people here. Um, But these are just some of the issues. You know, this is, these are, it's a matter of huge concern, I think, to the people who work in the service and who are desperate for it to be better. and, they, and, and it's, a, it's a huge challenge, I know, for the government, but they actually have to grasp some of these things. 
with a view about how you change services. And I come back to that point, I think for 15 years now, we've had a government, they were elected in 2007 on the basis of we won't reform, we won't change public services. And sometimes I think they have begun to believe the narrative of their own powerlessness. Some of these politicians think they can't change things. And if they think they can't change things because they think they don't have the powers or the, you know, the, the, to, to do it, they should get out the road. I think this is something we're going to come back to again and again, I'm quite sure, over the, the months ahead. Uh, but for now, Michael, thank you very much for, for joining us. I think I'll start off here uh, highlighting a little bit about how the Tayside, NHS Tayside board has responded to that because there was, there was a lot of discussion there about very specific claims on the concerns about scaling back surgery, NHS Tayside denied that theatres are lying empty. They say their teams are working tirelessly, as you'd expect. And they also drew attention to their best performing four-hour A&E waiting targets. Um, a, spokes, a spokesperson for Tayside told us, our teams have not had to pause all electives or declare a blanket cancellation on procedures and operations, which is the case in other areas. Elective operations are continuing across all three acute sites at Ninewells, Perth Royal and Stracathro. And they also said more beds were opened in the past month to cope with flu and COVID patients as well as trauma. And those beds are now being retracted as flu and COVID levels stabilise. It is a tough one, this. Doctors and nurses are, are fighting a big battle to keep up with demand. But it's quite clear that um, health professionals aren't getting enough support. Justin, we've we've heard a lot about Tayside, but also how in certain aspects, it's a, as Michael Mara said, a canary in the coal mine. Are we warning about bigger problems elsewhere? What is the situation like in other parts of, of Scotland? Well, it's, it's very much a kind of universal situation here, isn't it, where the NHS is under pressure everywhere. Uh, we have similar stats, obviously, in NHS Highland and NHS Grampian to those that have come out with NHS Tayside. Obviously, as you mentioned, one of the better performing areas for NHS Tayside has been in regard to waiting times. They've generally kept above the Scottish averages and performed better um, but NHS Grampian has you know repeatedly kind of struggled in this regard and some of the stats were revealed this week um, both NHS Grampian and NHS Highland scheduling fewer operations than before the pandemic and more cancellations there's also been a rise in the amount of bed walking so when patients should be able to leave hospital but they can't therefore meaning that you can't free up space. Mm. And that then links to things like social care, because if you don't have the resources to let someone leave hospital and go into care, they end up taking a bed that they perhaps don't need. We've obviously reported in recent weeks about you know the kind of shortage of staff in more rural areas in Scotland. That's been a problem for years. We spoke to Dingwall GP, Miles Mack, who talked about you know GP services being under pressure as well. And these things all link together. So yeah. if you have pressure in frontline services, that's going to feed into social care and vice versa at the same time. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a big issue everywhere. It is. Rachel, is there any good news anywhere to highlight? It doesn't sound like it, does it? I mean, everything just seems to be struggling so much at the moment. And it was quite interesting what Michael Mara was saying in that interview, saying like this is not what the medical professionals want. Because people who go into that profession, they want to they want to care for people, they want to make people better. And it just sounds like they're just not getting the time and the resources to actually be able to do that properly, mm. doesn't it? So it just it doesn't sound like it's going to be an easy fix at all. I think we're, this is going to rumble on for a long time. Yeah. I think every week in Parliament we're going to hear this brought up time and time again as well because it just doesn't seem to get any better soon, does it? For every person who agrees with every single thing that someone like Michael Mara just said, there will be someone else listening here thinking, well, I, I went in for treatment for something 
in Dundee recently and it was exemplary. I had a fantastic experience. The staff were brilliant and it all worked out fine. I mean, it's clearly the case that the health service is continuing, but I think we're really getting into the the weeds of it here by saying that there's something more structural. I mean, we can't surely be going on thinking that things are, are okay and getting better when we keep hearing doctors and nurses saying that they're, they're going to strike over pay or they can't do particular things. And there's emails going around in Tayside saying we need to scale back certain approaches to surgery or whatever. However safe that is, it's, it, it surely does show that there's something that Scottish government are going to have to take seriously and step in and figure out how on earth we pay for all of this. Of course, because I think when you think of the hospitals and the health service, getting treated is the first thing you think of. And it just seems to be a struggle to get that now, especially if they're thinking of scaling back surgery and things like that. Okay, well, let's turn to some of the other big stories catching our attention this week. Rachel, I'll stick with you. We're moving a wee bit down the coast now to the Kingdom of Fife. Uh, there's been some distressing discussion going on here about um, schools. We're back into education now, away from health. We're recording this today just after The Courier put a very powerful front page out about bullying. Talk us through what's been going on here. Yes, it's, it's a problem all over, as we know, but it seems to be particularly at the moment in Fife at the moment. Um, we've seen some horrendous videos um, coming out of uh, Wade Academy um, in Anstruther, um, looking at sort of very violent sort of clashes between pupils, people being bullied horrendously. We've also now seen videos from Bell Baxter as well and Cooper. And um, we also have an interview in our website about a girl from Bell Baxter speaking out about her own experience being bullied. It's, it's, it's a very harrowing read, um, but I think it really highlights just how widespread this problem is at the moment. And I think bullying has been something that every generation of school children has had to put up with, unfortunately. But I just think that the level of violence at the moment is quite particular. And it's also yeah. the fact that it's being filmed and shared on social media. So this whole sort of dissemination of it on TikTok and other social media sites is also fueling a lot of this discussion at the moment. Yeah, and people who went to school, like I did before mobile phones existed, you left school at, at the gate and you went home, but it follows you now. So colleagues in, in, in Dundee uh, wrote a pretty powerful little expose about how many social media accounts that they were able to find quite quite quickly across places like TikTok, which are dedicated to basically glorifying teen violence, bullying, schools, things like that. Yeah, it just seems inescapable at the moment, doesn't it, for, for these pupils? Or councils or teachers or head, or head teachers or the government saying about this? Is there anything that they can do? Well, it has been brought up with um, Nicola Sturgeon, for example. Um, it, like These videos have been sort of presented mm. to her. Like, look, like this is just how bad it really, really is at the moment. And she has um, condemned these videos, said that the violence is never acceptable. But it, it's a lot of um, it's a lot to ask of teachers as well to sort of intervene in these kind of situations, yeah. isn't it? So it, it's a difficult situation all around. Sticking with Nicola Sturgeon, we were also looking at... Uh, another huge stushy which seems to dominate every week uh, since before Christmas recently and, and far back then it's about gender reform again. Justin, you've been looking at this. What's the latest twist in this very complicated saga? 
So this is obviously one that has been rumbling on for months now from, you know, the kind of attempts to pass the bill last month to the UK government wanting to block the SNP's gender reforms uh, recently. And what has inflamed the debate again has been the case of a rapist who was sent to Cottonvale Women's Prison. This was somebody who had been a man at the time when they committed the attacks, but now identifies as a woman. So the Scottish Conservatives went in quite strongly in this yesterday. They said that this person, uh, now known as Isla Bryson, should not be at Corton Vale. Nicola Sturgeon said they were only really there temporarily while an assessment was ongoing. She did assure the Scottish Conservatives and I suppose the public that Isla Bryson won't be staying at Corton Vale for a sentence. But the argument being made by the Conservatives and those that oppose these gender reforms are that, well, they are there at the moment, you know, they've gone to the prison for now and even if they are segregated away, the idea of a rapist going to a woman's prison is yeah. just something that sits very, very uncomfortably with a lot of people and I suppose has put the government in a bit of a quandary. Yeah, the idea at its most basic that you can self-identify and then be treated that way has caused Nicola Sturgeon no end of, of problems trying to debate the various factions and, and ideas. Now... She's in Parliament saying, well, in this case, this this person now goes to a men's prison. So what does that then say about the law that they were trying to pass? Is there a problem there now? Well, well this is, I suppose, where it's quite complex because obviously transgender people can, in a lot of cases, self-identify. You know, if you're transgender, that legal recognition is a step that you can get to change your birth certificate and that will then change a lot of kind of I suppose the, the kind of the more technical details and how you live your life in that regard, but you don't need that gender recognition certificate to live as a transgender person. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the, the concern in a case like this is the idea that someone has just changed their gender after committing horrific sex attacks, and how does that then impact where they go to prison? Yeah. Essentially, um, this was raised last month in terms of amendments to that could be made to the bill. Some of these amendments were voted down, I believe, over kind of concerns around human rights and how that would work for prisoners. But it does kind of present a major issue that is that seems to be rumbling on now. Well, on that very point, there's a, a, a an eyebrow raised or two um, at one of the interventions because, as we know, and just to bring our listeners back up to date a little if they've lost track, the Scottish government, of course, tried to pass the gender recognition laws, which would allow, or it aims to speed up the process and make it a lot easier for people to to legally change their gender. The, the UK government stepped in controversially and blocked this law from from being enacted they say it's because of overreach it's it, it goes beyond the devolved powers of the scottish parliament because it it may affect the um, laws in, in england and wales alistair jack the scottish secretary is sticking by that saying that it's up to the scottish government to now go back take it to parliament amend it and try again but something else emerged from within the snp ranks justin Yes, of course. So Dr. Lisa Cameron, she is an MP for the SNP, um, basically asked Alistair Jack to intervene. Now, it's, it's pretty remarkable, given the circumstances, when you have an SNP MP essentially saying to the UK Scottish Secretary, you should intervene and block this law. It, it just feels sort of unprecedented in many ways, the idea that someone who's pro-independence could want the UK government to stop a law from going into place. Lisa Cameron did try to justify it a bit in a letter by saying, I've spoken to constituents and this is what they want. But, but it, it feels hard to believe that if you were in favour of these reforms, if you thought they were a good idea, 
you would write to the UK Scottish Secretary and argue that they should block them because of what your constituents believe. I just, mm. it, it just seems kind of incredulous uh, in that regard. And it chimes against what the SNP themselves have been saying. They have very much been putting Alistair Jack at the forefront of this sort of idea of, you know, to deny democracy mm-hmm. and saying that he's essentially trying to dictate what was Scotland can and cannot pass. So, yeah, that's a major headache for the SNP at Westminster, especially given recent changes. They have a new leader in, in place at the moment and it suggests that within the party ranks there's not necessarily the discipline they'd want at the moment. Yeah, and there'll be more on that if you keep an eye on our web pages across the Press and Journal and the Courier. Okay, that's it for this week. Thanks to Derek Healy, Michael Mara, Justin Bowie, Rachel Amory, producer Morvan McIntyre, and of course to you for listening. We'll be back next week with more, but until then, and even after then, pick up or log on to the Courier, the Press and Journal, and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed. The Stushi is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster and our communities so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following The Stushi today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushi Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.